Welcome to the Team Health Podcast Program, Beyond Clinical Medicine, What They Don't Teach You in Residency. I'm Rob Strauss, Team Health Chief Medical Training Officer, and this podcast is about creating meaning in an increasingly complicated world by making a difference. What can critical involvement do? It can make a difference, provide personal meaning at a time when we may be overwhelmed by so much tragedy and our own personal responsibilities, and it can inspire others. Specifically, we're going to talk about volunteerism. Everybody listening is familiar with the devastation in Ukraine, and without provocation, this country, which declared its independence from Russia more than 30 years ago, has been engaged in defending itself from a vicious full-scale attack by Russia. There have been tens of thousands of deaths and so many more casualties. The discussion is about one doctor's efforts to help, not just today, but rather for more than 25 years. Today, we have a most special guest, Brian McMurray. I know Brian because he teaches in Team Health's leadership development program. He's an emergency physician with an expertise in risk management and is a leader in a litigation support program. He's a member of the Vanderbilt Emergency Medicine and Hospital Medicine faculty. Brian, welcome to the program, and thank you for your willingness to share your story. Well, thanks, Rob. It's a joy to be here. Thanks. Um, so why Ukraine? Well, indeed, I, I certainly, uh, in uh, late 1995, uh, didn't understand what was about to unfold in my life. Uh, at church, uh, on a church bulletin, there was a little announcement, medical team needed for Ukraine. And uh, I said to my wife who was sitting next to me, I said, I don't know why, but I've got to go to that organizational meeting and find out about that. And she said, where, where is Ukraine? And I said, well, I think it's right near Russia. I know it was part of the Soviet Union and it's been free from the Soviet Union for about five years. So I went to the organizational meeting, met a couple that had moved with their kids from Venitsa, Ukraine, to Franklin, Tennessee, learned about people from our church that wanted to go there, and actually a family that wanted to move to Venitsa um, and set up a digital recording studio there. So I really, you know, when you say why Ukraine, well, indeed, why? I didn't know what was going on. I remember getting off the plane in Kiev in April of 96 on trip number one you know, Cold War kid, Cuban Missile Crisis, the whole, you know, it's just kind of going, well, this is interesting. And then the warmth of the people just progressively melted my heart. And now I just recently completed my 44th trip there since. And um, I, I don't want to sound corny, but it's been a cascade of God's grace. Well, I understand you've gone multiple times since, and you've been involved at multiple levels, uh, medically, humanitarian. Uh, tell us about that. So there was an initial focus on, on collaborating with doctors there, helping at some orphanages. Quickly, I realized that meaningful collaboration doesn't mean that you go in and hand out a bunch of pills, do way too many physical exams in a compressed time frame, And, you know, what collaboration really means is uh, being intentional about establishing important relationships, uh, learning their medical system, uh, having a servant and humble heart, uh, and keep going back and show them loyalty, uh, 
and learn how they want you to help them, not vice versa. So at one point you told me about a story at the orphanage and a sword dance that occurred. Can you tell us about that? Well, there, there are many, you know, you can imagine each trip's about two to three weeks in duration. So that means I've spent a year and a half or whatever of my life there, hmm. all different seasons of the year. Well, one occasion uh, we went to an orphanage and my middle daughter, Mary Ellen, happened to be with me on this one. She was about 12 and all three of my daughters danced here in the region competitively uh, Highland, uh, Scottish uh, Highland dancing. Um, and one of the dances is called the sword dance. And so uh, my friends in Ukraine knew about Mary Ellen and her sisters doing this and said, hey, any chance she could, you know, come over in her kilt and bring some things over and, and do uh, some demonstration? Well, the kids in the orphanage had never seen anybody in a kilt, uh, and they'd certainly never seen anybody doing Highland dancing. Uh, and I'll never forget it. It's just like the kids were just uh, overwhelmed uh, and like hushed. Uh, and Mary Ellen was really touched. It was a precious time, you know, for her at that age to realize that all these kids uh, didn't have their parents and uh, that she could just love on them and that they were enthralled with her. Um, it, it, you know, I remember at the end of each trip, Rob, we would have a debriefing uh, like over dinner of whoever had gone on the trip. And I would try to get people from the church, other clinicians, other people in health related fields. So we would share a little vignette. You were allowed to tell one little story about what had happened on the trip. And Mary Ellen told the group about the sword dance. And then she turned to me and was crying and said, now I realize dad, why you come over here and why it's so important to you. Because up until that time, you know, as, as a one of three daughters, I think her perspective might've been, oh gee, dad's going away again you know, and it stresses mom and, you know, that kind of perspective, which was true, <laughs> unfortunately, but that's reality. But it, she started crying and saying how much it meant to her. And now she understood. And, and of course I started crying, uh, but it was a very poignant moment uh, with a daughter. Um, I'll never forget it. Yeah. How sweet and inspiring. You've gone since the mid nineties and I know you've visited more than 40 times. How is, how have you, how has the medicine changed as you've observed it over those years? Well, uh, what I learned quickly, uh, Rob, is that they are very, uh, from the, well, I call it the Soviet hangover. Uh, it's has nothing to do with vodka. Um, and <laughs> the Soviet hangover is I'm applying that in a medical sense, although it's transcendent. Um, in a medical sense, the Soviet hangover is that they're very risk averse. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, to give you an example, until a week after this war broke out, February 24th of this year, would you believe they were not allowed to give uncross-matched blood ever? Wow. Under any clinical circumstance. Uh, and that's a story how that's now changed. Uh, and uh, okay, another example. I happened upon a patient in biventricular failure, could hardly walk across the room, chronic AFib, and uh, had an EF uh, of 20% on a good day. Uh, and uh, I looked at his meds, and at this time we had evolved to a true collaboration where 
I would go with a translator and a physician friend of mine, and we would go to hospitals all over the country. Um, and what we would do is ask that the Ukrainian physician be present with the patient and present the patient. And we asked, well, make, make these patients that you present to us, please, diagnostic and or therapeutic dilemmas, or if it's neither of those, but it's just a dilemma about how to get them help. So those three types of patients. And I met Grigory Matuchuk in Litin uh, in the late 90s, the one that was in biventricular failure, and I noticed he was not on an ACE inhibitor. And so I asked the physician, and the physician says, well, why would you ask about, they call it an APEF inhibitor. Uh, he said, why would you want this patient to have that medicine? And I said, oh, we use that very, we use high dose ACE inhibitors in systolic failure. It's amazing. He said, well, we're not allowed to do that. It's only for high blood pressure. And so that's when I realized that they're not, they don't do off-label stuff like we do, right? Uh, they just stay. And so I actually was blessed to write up a protocol. They don't have utilization review. You could put a patient in the hospital for a month and nobody say a word to you, you know? <laughs> so wow. we, we drafted a protocol where they'd let the patient get a bit wet and then start titrating up the lisinopril or enalapril, which were the two at the time, uh, to aggressive dosing that was, they were like, you got to be kidding me, you know, and no, 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 this will work, this will work, I promise. And so we, uh, Grigori, they followed the protocol with Grigori, and we, we called him Lazarus, because he went from that state I described to going back and run, running his farm. And when I say running his farm, I mean running his farm. If you can imagine a solo farmer and his wife, and uh, he lived another nine years, and um, it was just an amazing experience in my life medically to be able to help somebody else realize, well, wait, there is another way to do this. I didn't know we could use these drugs this way. So two questions. One is, how long ago was that? And two, can you describe how that one change in one place has changed medicine in the Ukraine? Well, at the time I hadn't traveled all over the country. Uh, you know, it was in, uh, probably uh, in 98, as I recall. So at the time I'd probably only been there half a dozen times uh, or so. Um, and, but the protocol that we drafted uh, in, this Venitsa Oblast, it's called, in a little town called Litian. Uh, it caught on like wildfire. You, you can imagine that doctor didn't keep it to himself what had happened to Grigori and how this medicine had been used. So I know I, I know it spread all over the country. I, I can't attest to you that no one else in the entire country had a clue, but based on what I was told, it, it wasn't it wasn't just that they had no clue about its utility in systolic failure, but uh, it was against the medical law to do it. Right. They didn't go off-label on protocols. This was off-label for them at that point. And so that change was significant and did spread. So there's another story, I think, even earlier in your time there about prostheses. Can you oh, tell yeah. us about that? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I can't speak for other people, but all I can tell you is uh Doors were not opening. They were flying open. Uh, when I say doors, I mean opportunities to help people. So it's my very first day 
in Ukraine after flying into Kiev and going to Vinitsa and arriving late at night. And so we're staying at a hotel and we come back to the hotel after our busy first day at hospitals. And it's at dusk. And a man rather animatedly runs up to our translator and says, are these the American doctors? And there was one other doctor with me. And he said, yes. And he said, well, I hope they could help my son. So I was introduced to Benjamin Rabitz. And he had been in a horrific car wreck. He, his wife and son, baby son, were with him. And he had lost his uh, left arm above the elbow and left leg below the knee. Uh, and he was having horrific time with the prosthesis and stump ulcers on the left leg. And he said, how can you help? And, I, and Tom Duncan, the other doctor, and I, we said, well, we're not sure, but... I said, well, why don't we just take photos of him and then we'll measure uh, his good limbs, all the lengths. So we did that and I came back home and presented him at the Vanderbilt Prosthesis Clinic. And one of the men there said, well, I, don't, I can't make the next trip you make, but my father will be on the trip, rest assured. And so his father's name was Ed Dillard who ran a prosthesis clinic and manufacturing site here in Nashville. And sure enough, Ed Dillard went on the next two trips. First trip was just to get to know people there and engender some trust. And I can relate to that because, you know, you have to build relationships to be able to really break through. And so Ed did that on the first trip and he learned what they needed. They needed the latest carbon monomers. They needed the latest things that uh, uh, unweight the prosthesis so that it doesn't have a focal, it spreads the weight. I, I don't know how to say it, but so it doesn't create these stump ulcers. Well, literally, Ed Dillard, well into his 70s at the time, two trips to Venetia, Ukraine, where by coincidence, the leading was the leading site of prosthesis manufacturing for the whole nation. And he transformed their manufacture of prosthesis. And, you know, so the good news for Benjamin is he got this amazing state-of-the-art prosthesis that solved his problems with his leg. And um, Ed Dillard changed everything in that country from that moment forward about how they manufacture prostheses. What a wonderful story. And again, it's not necessarily... Uh, what you did, but you did make the connection that allowed others to provide very, very helpful um, medical care. So that that's fantastic. So you were there on your 43rd trip last month. So I have a, uh, I guess, a multi-part question. Wasn't that dangerous? Why'd you go? What did you see? And what was your focus? Oh, well, the last two trips were the 43rd and 44th, and uh, but who's counting, right? Um, <laughs> so uh, the danger. Well, I was thinking about the, on the first trip, you know, I felt conviction to go. Uh, I've been so many times. I know the nation like the back of my hand. I have friends in all major cities. I felt that I needed to go first and foremost to show them my love is not conditional. It's uh, it's unwavering and I wanted to be with them 
Uh, I wanted to learn what I could do to help now under these circumstances. I wanted to see firsthand the impact on many people and many friends. Uh, my wife would usually get nervous, Catherine, would, when I would go on these trips. She did go three times herself, and that helped, but um, she'd get nervous about each trip. But this trip, she said to me one morning, you really want to go, don't you? And I said, I feel I need to. Uh, and I asked uh, what I can do to help, and my friends told me, you need to come if you're willing to. Uh, and, you know, I just turned 70, and... Um, I felt like, well, you know, I'm not looking to get in trouble or die. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, my family's grown up and everybody's in pretty good condition and place. And my one of my sons-in-law, who's our certified planner for our family, financial planner, he says, he calls me up, he says, don't say anything to Catherine, but could you give me that term life policy number? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. And so I did. Uh, I gave Drew the number. And so that kind of brought it home, I guess. And then the, the air raid sirens going off all the time. And, and one early morning in Vinitsa, they hit the TV station. And I wasn't sure if I'd heard a boom or if I'd been dreaming because it was like 4 a.m. But honestly, there wasn't a moment. Even then, I wasn't distracted by fear or, or anything. I, you know, and I traveled all over. Uh, the furthest east I went is Kiev. Um, Right. I saw, saw things there, but I, no, I, I didn't feel endangered uh, personally. Uh, I just felt, honestly, I felt like I needed to be there to support friends and to learn what I could do. And that next trip was able to help start some things. What things? Well, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that they, they are so risk averse and everything. So, you know, can you imagine it being illegal to give uncross-matched blood. And after 2014, uh, when Putin did his initial adventure and annexed Crimea, uh, AKA stole it, uh, and in infiltrated the Donbass region, uh, Vitaly Krylyuk, if I say that name Vitaly, he's the ASEP International Section Liaison for Ukraine. So each host country has a liaison or two, which are the people from the host country that work with the ASEP ambassador to that country and deputy ambassador uh, to facilitate collaboration. Well, Vitaly is in charge of the nation's uh, education for pre-hospital medicine and disaster medicine. He's in the Ministry of Health. He's based in Kiev. And so he had shared with me long ago about this uh, not giving uncross-matched blood. So I was blessed to recruit a team in 2015 and 17 that included Tim Nunez, uh, twice bronze medal recipient, Iraq and Afghanistan from the army, who is now the number two man at the time in Vanderbilt trauma. And so he came over and lectured all over and was able to reinforce that you must be able to give on cross-match blood. Well, Vitaly had shared this with many people in the Ministry of Health. One week into this war, in late February, the Minister of Health calls Vitaly up and he says, Vitaly, I know you've been talking about all this uncross-matched blood and the Vanderbilt transfusion, massive transfusion protocol. Um, you suppose you could send that to me again? I can't find it. And so he sent it to him and he signed it two days later. And now 
they they have literally adopted the Vanderbilt massive transfusion protocol in Ukrainian. And uh, this last trip, I was able to go around teaching point of care blood typing in the field and uh, whole blood transfusion. It's fabulous. Uh, again, major difference maker that has real life consequences, um, really changing medicine. Uh, big picture, Brian, what have you learned from all of this personally? Oh, wow. That's how long do we have? <laughs> <laughs> First and foremost, I had reinforced something I've always known, but I haven't always done a great job at, but I've really tried always. Um, whether you're a physician or whether you're just a parent or a grandparent or whatever, regardless of the relationship, you have to establish a, uh, a foundation to all, any relationship. And it seems that it's always predicated upon the other person knowing two things. One, that you're listening, and two, that you care. So I've realized in Ukraine in helping them that the more I listen and the more I care, the more I learn of their needs and then can collaborate back home, bring teams over, sometimes work on things that are within my knowledge in medicine, uh, in internal medicine and emergency medicine. But so I've learned the impact and importance. I also uh, learned that if you want to know what patients are taking in terms of medications, you have to have the pill bottles in front of you uh, and find out what they're really taking, not what they're supposed to be taking. And you have to do it in a disarming way. You have to, When you're taking a medical history, you have to make it okay for the person to let you down. In other words, they don't want to tell you that they're not taking that pill because it was too much money or whatever. But if you take a medical history, uh, depending, yeah, you can't always do that in emergency medicine, right? But uh, I've done more than just that in hospital medicine and other clinics. But that's how you get the real story is you disarm people, you make it okay, and you get the truth about what they're doing. And I learned that in Ukraine, that the doctors there would often suggest a medication that they couldn't afford, that they never got on it. Um, so it, it impacted how I practice medicine. And then just um, learning about how other cultures are and learning how to be a better person, not just a doctor. And, and you know, there's no way to enjoy almost anything more than giving to other people. I've been a facilitator, Rob, more than individual. I mean, I've had opportunities to have an impact personally. And of course, you, when you see that door open, you walk through it. Catherine, a number of years ago, said, well, why don't you start going somewhere else? Why don't you just keep going to Ukraine? And I said, well, I'll tell you what, here's the, here's the deal, or here's a deal. Um, I promise you that if I go over there on any trip and God stops throwing doors wide open for me to help people or to bring over others to help, I promise you I'll start going elsewhere. Of course, that's never happened. This is this is fab fabulous. The way I think of altruism, it's giving of yourself to help others in a way that is personally meaningful to you. And I, this sounds like a, a perfect example of that. 
Brian, I think probably other people who are listening will want to know more. And I know you've you've had an active blog for many years and um, some websites. Could you tell us what those are so that if somebody did want to know more or contact you directly and find out what they can do, uh, that they would have access? Sure. Um, one is um, a WordPress uh blog and the site or link for it is ukrainemedicalmission.com. The other uh, group that I'm involved with now uh, are on the Dniester River on the Moldovan border in a town called Moldiv Poldilsky. And that's a strategic site, thankfully not strategic militarily, but a humanitarian corridor uh, from Moldova into Ukraine. They live right there. They have a foster home. They currently have two kids of their own and 12 kids that are foster kids. And they have a wonderful ministry there. Well, they have shifted things. They're now uh, running a refugee center for people fleeing Ukraine. Hmm. Uh, mostly that, as you may know, is wives, grandparents, and children, because men 18 to 60 if they have less than three children, are not allowed out of the country. They, they stay to serve. So that ministry now shifted to helping get supplies all over the nation, including to the front lines, uh, as well as helping people in desperate need fleeing the battle areas. So their ministry is at RaisingHopeUkraine.com. And... I would just encourage people to explore the website. I'm very biased. I'm on their board, uh, but uh, it's uh, a, a joy to help them in every way. Uh, and uh, so I, I love them and I love what they're doing. They've really uh, rallied to help. We, we got an ambulance to the front lines in Kharkiv last week. Um, and there's a lot of things you can do. Well, Brian, thank you. And and what you're describing, our friend Tom Mayer describes often, which is one person, one patient, one situation at a time is what makes a difference. And you've made a huge difference. And thank you for sharing this very moving story with us. My pleasure and privilege. Thank you. If you have any questions about this topic or suggestions for other topics, please contact me at beyondclinicalmedicine.org. Thank you.